Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest today is Julie Weeks, who is President and Chief Executive Officer of Women Able. Today we will discuss how Hispanic businesses are finding success in government contracting. In her role as President and Chief Executive Officer of a Research, Program, and Policy Development Consultancy that seeks to enable women's entrepreneurship worldwide, Julie focuses her attention on women's entrepreneurship in the private and public sectors in research, public policy, and program management. She has nearly 30 years of experience in research, public policy, and communications. For three years, she served as Executive Director of the National Women's Business Council, a federally funded bipartisan policy advisory body created by the U.S. Congress to serve as an independent voice of women's entrepreneurship and an advisor to the President, U.S. Congress, and the U.S. Small Business Administration on women's entrepreneurship issues. Prior to that position, Julie spent nine years as the Director of Research and Managing Director of the Center for Women's Business Research, a nonprofit organization that conducts research among women business owners and their enterprises. She has also served as Deputy Chief Counsel for Statistics and Research at the U.S. Small Business Administration and Vice President for Research and Public Policy at two market research firms. In addition to her work in the United States, she has led, coordinated, and consulted on research projects focused on women business owners and their enterprises in more than a dozen other countries. Julie received a master's degree from the University of Michigan. She serves on the board of, of the International Council for Small Business, as well as the National Board of the National Association of Women Business Owners and co-chairs the Public Policy Council on the Association of Women Business Centers. She is also on the advisory board of Enterprising Women magazine. Julie, welcome. Thank you very much, Elena. Glad to be here. When we talk about women enterprises, are we referring to women-owned businesses or women-run businesses? Is there a clear definition? That's actually a very good question. Um, typically, when you're talking about a woman-owned business, it's a business that's majority owned by a woman. Um, but when you're talking about women business owners, that could be you know, one of many owners of a business, and it may not necessarily be a majority owned business. And, and also, there, there is a distinction between women owned, which is typically majority owned, and women led, which could be less than majority owned, you know, but plurality owned. And actually, as a business gets larger and larger and and gets other investors involved in the business, you might not be typically, you know, a quote-unquote woman-owned business anymore, but you're probably still a woman-led business. For purposes of today's discussion, do those distinctions matter, or are we pretty much covering all of those definitions? We're pretty much covering all those definitions. When we're talking here about um, Hispanic businesses, men and women-owned, um, in contracting, um, you're talking about, um, those that are probably majority owned, but it's self-identified in terms of federal contracting. So it, typically it's supposed to be majority owned, but somebody is self-identifying as a major, as a um, woman-owned or a Latino-owned or African-American-owned business. Now, that brings me to the next question, of course, which is when it comes to being Latino or Hispanic, there's a lot of controversy even among 
people who consider themselves Latinos because it's not really a race, rather it's an ethnicity. How does, how does the government, if you will, for purposes of our discussion today, identify who is Latino and who isn't? Yeah, and that, again, that's the identification of the owner, him or herself, when they are registering on CCR, the Central Contractor Registration System, which is the first step for getting involved in federal contracting. But you're right, in, in terms of the U.S. Census Bureau, um, there are racial classifications and then there are ethnic classifications, and, and Hispanics fall into the ethnic classification. I'm not personally sure what the history of that is, but... Um, for purposes of our survey, we asked um, the respondents in the survey what their race slash ethnicity was, which was a multiple choice question, which included white, black, African American, Hispanic, um, Native American, Asian Pacific Islander, all in one list, and you could tick as many as you you felt that you um, would would uh, identify with. For purposes of this discussion, then, these are individuals who have self-identified as Latino. They have said, I am Latino. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I'm okay. Latino. Or if they're a female, I'm a Latina. And um, we asked some separate questions about whether they are registered you know, in the federal government as uh, in the 8A program or any of those other programs. But no, we asked the individual entrepreneur that we are in- interviewing or that we interviewed on these, this survey, you know, what their uh, racial-slash-ethnic classification is. Let's talk a little bit about the survey you conducted, or you were part of a project that conducted a groundbreaking survey, as I understand it, that addressed mm-hmm. the issues of small businesses procuring federal contracting. Yes, this was actually um, taking a look at the entire population of businesses that are um, either registered on CCR, the Central Contractor Registration, or are not only registered but have contract activity in the federal procurement data system. I don't, I don't know of any other survey that's taken this deep a dive, you know, into those databases. So we took a random sample of that entire population and conducted an online survey among uh, those who are just registered and are not currently active contractors and those who are currently active contractors and ask them a series of questions about you know, how long they've been involved in contracting, what their difficulties were, um, what their contract activity is, lessons that they would pass along to those who are thinking about getting into contracting and, and what some of their challenges have been along the way. So this was done by the American Express Open team because they are of course, wanting businesses to grow, and they see this as a, as a very important market opportunity, getting into federal contracting, which, of course, it is. What is the American Express Open team? Uh, American Express Open is a, a business um, credit card um, or purchasing card, and they have a new program that's been around for about a year called Victory in Procurement for Small Business, which invites any small business owner who's interested in federal procurement to attend workshops that they hold around the country. They have some events um, um, teaming you up with other businesses that are interested in you know, joining forces to go and uh, seek federal contracting opportunities. They've provided some support to um, an initiative 
put out by the Women Impacting Public Policy group called Give Me Five, which refers to the 5% procurement goal for women-owned businesses. So they're providing support to some other organizations and uh, offering any small business owner um, tips and tools uh, for learning about getting into into government contracting. And we're talking here into federal government contracting as opposed to you know, state uh, government contracting because every state has slightly different rules. And actually at the federal government level, even different agencies have, have different rules too. Now, so if the survey was conducted by American Express Open, what was your relationship to the project? Um, I was hired by them as somebody who's been involved in federal procurement, uh, as I've worked in Washington, D.C. for quite a while. And also um, my business is consulting in uh, in market research and also policy and program analysis. And so um, I had worked with them previously a couple of years ago on an initiative um, focusing specifically on women-owned businesses. And even though this particular project is not specifically for women-owned businesses, uh, it's for women and men. Um, and, and one of the things that we, they wanted to do in this project was look and see, are there gender differences in the experiences that business owners are facing entering federal contracting, and are there um, any racial or ethnic-specific challenges? And so I conducted this survey for them. It was done in uh, January and February of, of 2010, earlier this year, um, and interviewed over 1,500 small business owners, both those who are currently active in contracting and those that may have had a contract in the past but aren't as active anymore. For those of our listeners who are unfamiliar with the concept or the process of being a contractor with the federal government, would you tell us a little bit about what requirements are part of that process? Are there uh, basic requirements that need to be met in order for a business to qualify to seek procurement opportunities with the federal government? Um, yes, there there are just a few actually very basic steps to, to get um, ready to go at the starting gate, if you will. Um, but after that happens, there are quite a number of steps to take to actually uh, find contracting success. Um, the first step a business owner should take is to register their business on the Central Contractor Registration System, CCR, ccr.gov. Um, it's a fairly long process with listing out um, your business, um, what your business classifications are, um, whether you are involved in any other federal program like being in the 8A program, um, and just about what your business does because any federal buyer, one of the first steps they do is to see what your you know, registration number is in the federal procurement system. Um, but that's really only um, a license to hunt, so to speak. Uh, that's just the very basic first step. There are an awful lot of steps that one has to take after that, um, which involve um, trying to meet with federal government officials, um, doing some research on your own for the particular good or service that you are offering, you know, you need to look and see what federal agencies actually purchase those goods or services, and you have to target your marketing that way, just as you would any other customer group. In terms of seeking out that license to hunt, as you called it, 
a very interesting and perhaps very descriptive uh, phrase. <laughs> I've heard from colleagues who have had uh, state or county procurement contracts, government contracts, that they can be very challenging, that they can take a long time to secure, that they're very mm -hmm. competitive, that the payments are delayed, and that it can be, in a short word, a hassle. Yeah. What are the incentives to pursue these opportunities versus private or nonprofit opportunities? Um, well, it's a very good question because federal contracting is certainly not for everybody. Um, while it is true that the federal government buys just about everything, you know, I mean, it's not just, um, you know, airplanes um, and, and office cleaning services, and, but there are an awful lot of uh, consulting services, um, you know, even gardening and lawn services, federal properties, that sort of thing. Um, you really have to take a look at, at what your product and service is and, and really is it worth the investment that it takes. Um, what's interesting in, in the survey is we found that on average a small business owner um, spends about $86,000 a year seeking federal procurement opportunities. That's staff, time, and cash outlays. And Latino uh, business owners spend about the same amount, $93,000 a year, uh, gaining access to federal procurement opportunities. And that's you know, meetings, the time it takes to submit proposals, and that sort of thing. So it's not for everybody. That takes, um, you know, an investment of time and money. Um, we did find in this survey that it took um, about one and a half years of trying before getting that first contracting success. So one of the most important pieces of advice that our successful small business contractors are offering is, the top piece of advice is to start small and to work your way up. Try to get a successful contract performance on something because if you have a positive record of performance, then it's sort of like the stepping stone to other uh, contract success. And if you first you don't succeed, keep trying. Um, going, you know, submitting a number of proposals before you get that, that contract success is, is very important. On average, the most successful contractors are putting in um, more bids, so it, which takes more time. What was the basic goal of the survey? I, I understand that it was a very uh, in-depth survey. What was the goal? What is it that American Express Open was seeking to find out? Um, seeking to find out where some of the challenge points are for small business owners to see if they could help, um, and also to find out, you know, those who are more successful than others, what are they doing differently, and what can they, you know, what can their experiences do to educate others. Um, and then thirdly, I think they wanted to, to take a look at what some of the unique um, constraints or methods or successes that, uh, you know, women contractors have compared to men and, and what business owners of color are facing um, compared to the majority of business owners. So they were, they were interested not only in, you know, advice and uh, pain points, <laughs> but also just what some of the differences are among the population that are active in federal contracting. And what did you find, Julie? 
Well, a couple of interesting things as far as um, Latino contractors. Um, again, uh, they got their first contract success at about the sa- after about the same amount of time. So it took Hispanic contractors no longer to land their first federal contract than it did the average federal contractor, about, again, about one and a half years, 1.7 years to be exact. Um, so, you know, the, the try and keep on, if you don't, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again, um, is the same for uh, Hispanic contractors as everybody else, and, it, and that path was no longer uh, for Hispanic contractors. However, um, the successes that are faced, um, or the challenges that are faced by Latinos when they're seeking federal contracts appears to be that it's taking them a few more at-bats, you know, to get those hits. Um, so looking at the batting average, if, if you look at the um, you know, number of contracts you won versus those that you bid on, which is, you know, my analogy of batting average, um, the, the prime contracting um, batting average um, for all small business owners is about 410. So if you're in baseball, actually that's a pretty good batting average. 40% of the time, you're getting you're getting a contract success. But the batting average for uh, Hispanic business owners is 320. You know, so 32% of the time that they are um, putting in a bid for a prime federal contract, um, they're getting a prime contract win. So the batting average is a little bit lower. Another interesting finding in terms of uh, Latino business owners um, employing the same or different strategies, uh, we found this for pretty much all business owners of color, that they're taking a much more relationship development approach to seeking federal contracts. We find that business owners of color are far more likely to be attending information sessions that are offered by agencies, they're attending matchmaking events, you know, either put on by agencies or put in put on by third-party organizations, and much more likely to be meeting with um, uh, OSDABU officials. And there's a um, acronym for everybody who's interested in federal contracting: OSDBU, the Office of Small and Disadvantaged Business Utilization. Every federal federal agency has one, and their job is to meet with small business owners and try to be a matchmaker for them within their particular agency. So business owners of color, including Hispanic business owners, are far more likely um, to be availing themselves of that, those sorts of opportunities. Any other important findings? Um, well, uh, yes. In terms of um, once businesses are through those pearly gates of federal contracting and are, and are making those um, contacts and gaining those contracts, the success levels of um, Hispanic business owners match that of everybody else. Um, since they've won um, those, that first federal contract, we're, we asked a question about, you know, looking back over all of your contract successes, you know, how m- many dollars of federal contracts have you um, gained over the time since you won your first contract? And among uh, Hispanics, 44% have, have, over the time that they've been involved in federal contracting, won a million dollars or more in federal contracts. And that's about the same level as all small firms that we interviewed who said 46% of whom said that over the time they've been involved, um, they've won a million dollars or more. 
and the employment size of the active Hispanic contractors um, and the sales size um, are about the same as the average federal contractor. So once Hispanic business owners are gaining contract success, having that first small contract, then a second slightly bigger contract, they are reaching the same level of success as the average federal contractor. Now they're doing that, as I as I said previously, by submitting more proposals because, as I said, their batting average is a little bit lower. But in terms of the, the monetary gain that has come to Hispanic contractors, in terms of the dollars, the, the value of those contracts, they are, they are achieving the same level of contracting success as every other small business owner. How many... In terms of percentages, would you share a breakdown with us of, say, general and the racial and ethnic breakdown? Um, oh, you mean just in terms of, um, well, the estimated value of the contracts in particular, you mean? Or we're, we're talking about, um, again, we've we interviewed um, 1,500 business owners, and let's see, it was about uh, 7% of the sample were um, Latinos, so similar to their share in the business population. Um, but what specifically are you asking for in terms of a percentage breakdown? Would you share a racial and ethnic breakdown by percentage of the contracts that you examined? In other words, what percentage was white, what percentage was African American, Asian, Native American, and Latino, mm. if you mm -hmm. have that? Um, yes. Again, in terms of the survey population at large, um, again, I said we interviewed a little over 1,500. About three-quarters of them, 76%, were Caucasian. 7% um, each were African-American, Hispanic, and Asian Pacific Islander. Another 3% of the survey population was Native American or Alaska Native and 3% said something else. And so, again, all of that adds up to more than 100% because some people ticked, um, you know, more than one box. And also in terms of uh, gender, 72% uh, of the survey was male, 28% female. And, and actually, when you take a look at this survey population, that, again, that's among active contractors. That's about the same as the business population at large. So it's, it's representative um, of, the, of the overall business population. What's interesting, though, is when we were taking a look at the the non-contractors, that is, those people who have registered on the CCR, again, the Central Contractor Registration System, but they are not actively performing on a federal contract, meaning either they have never won a contract or they won one a while ago, but they're not actively performing on one. And the racial and ethnic background um, of that population is much more heavily weighted toward business owners of color and women which tells us that there are more women and minorities that are still kind of knocking at the door of federal contracting. Um, once they get through that door and are active contractors, they are matching the success. You know, it's an even playing field kind of once you get through that gauntlet. But it does show that, the, that there's something going on at the beginning of the process um, that, is, that is not... Um, that the playing field is not quite level. Or perhaps it shows that um, there are more and more women and more and more minorities who are starting to get interested in federal contracting. That could be one of it, 
one of the reasons for it as well. But in terms of the, the non-contractors, um, 10% are Hispanic, um, 58% overall are, are Caucasian, 24% African American, 10% Hispanic, 8, 6% Asian Pacific Islander, 4% Native American, Alaska Native, 4% other, and then in terms of gender, 61% men, 39% women. And again, that's more heavily weighted toward um, women and business owners of color than the business population at large. Julie, was it easy to get these individuals to share their time and their insights with you? How were you able to get them to participate? Um, I was actually pretty um, surprised that we got a good response rate because, again, this is we weren't paying anybody anything. Um, we were just saying, please share your stories. Um, it was an online survey, and it was not really that long, you know, maybe 25 to 30 questions. They were very probing questions. Um, but I think that, that business owners, both those who are still trying and those who have had some successes, um, were, were fairly willing to share, um, you know, their experiences. It was, you know, anonymous, so we were, we were not taking any personal information for, uh, from our respondents. But I think, you know, given what they've gone through or are going through currently, um, I think they had some hopes that, that they could share some experience and expertise with others and that perhaps, um, you know, they might see in the media afterwards some of the results of this survey so that they might learn something themselves. So uh, we were actually, you know, given that, that this was a survey population that, that I'm not sure that we've ever, that's ever been commercially used like this to, to get that information from the federal procurement data system and actually conduct such an in-depth survey, um, we had our fingers crossed, you know, that it, that it would come through okay, and, and it actually we got, our goal was to get at least 1,000 uh, completed interviews, and we got over 1,500, so we were happy. How many did you contact in order to get those 1,500, and do you have a breakdown by racial and ethnic group of those and, and gender? No, that's a good question. We did not have a breakdown um, by ethnicity and response rate. Um, let me see what the overall response rate was. Um, I think it was higher for the um, non-contractors, meaning the ones who were still knocking on the door. I think we had, I'm looking on a piece of paper to see what I have down here, but um, I think it was about overall 5% response rate, which is actually very good for a, you know kind of anonymous, um, throw it out there and see what happens, not pay respondents anything kind of a, a sample, and it was, I think, closer to 10% among the um, non-contractor population. Were they willing to share insights? Was it easy to get them? I, I guess you have no way of, of gauging that, though, because it was just an online, you would, nobody was actually talking with them, right? Well, nobody was talking with them, but we did not have, uh, if you took a look at, at the progression of the survey, which, you know, when I design a survey, it is more conversational where you're starting out, you know, perhaps like we are today in our conversation with, with basic ground setting kind of questions, and then you get a little bit more specific. We did not have a drop-off. You know, people who went through the questionnaire partway through and then just escaped, you know, and left, um, or those who you know, skipped around and only answered the easy questions and, and didn't answer the hard questions. 
um, I think there were a few more people who didn't want to say what their revenues were because, I mean, that's always the case in in a um, survey questionnaire. Um, but we really, um, we had a pretty good um, response all the way through and we're asking about, um, I think they were particularly interested in ask, answering about, you know, what lessons would they pass along or or where have they had problems, that, that sort of thing. Um, so no, we didn't really we didn't really see a whole lot of pushback, I guess, from from the respondents. Although you know it's it's not a telephone conversation, so it was harder to to tell. But we we did see um, we, we were expecting to find a little bit more in the way of difficulty that people were having with navigating the the federal procurement system. Um, even though we did have a majority of our respondents saying that that was one of the aspects that they found the most difficult, just learning how to to navigate, we didn't have a lot of people saying it's an, an extremely difficult um, process. Were there any lessons learned or was there any information gleaned in terms of the type of businesses and the size of businesses that were more likely to succeed? Um, that's a good question. Um, uh, type, types of businesses, no. Actually, um, it was not you know, just those who sold a good as opposed to a service. Um, there was a wide range of all kinds of businesses that are successful in federal contracting. Um, in terms of the size, um, one thing we weren't really able to do is to look at you know, what was the size of the business when they first became successful. We're looking at you know, what is the size of their business now. And those who are involved in federal contracting are you know, much larger businesses than those who are inactive federal contractors. You know, they've, they're registered and they may have done a project, but they're not uh, active now. Um, so that does speak to the fact that you really should be, your business should be at a certain level of size before you're be going to become very, very active in federal contracting. But that varies so much by the type of business that you are. Um, you know, there are businesses that are active contractors, um, and I'm looking right now, that have, you know, um, very small businesses or I'm looking at the survey overall, and among all businesses, one-third of the federal contractors we interviewed that are active contractors don't have any employees under, other than the owner of the business. So, I mean, these are not huge businesses. 7% um, have 50 or more employees. So there are a lot of small businesses that, that we talked to, and these are the businesses that, you know, that said that over time, you know, 4 in 10 have won more than a million dollars in in contracts, those contracts, you know, could be several hundred thousand dollar contracts. Um, but you know, we're not talking about the bar being set so high that a small business cannot um, jump that bar. Were there any particular types of business that, on looking at the survey results, you discovered this is ideal for federal contracting? or this type of business never succeeds, or were there any revelations like that? Um, again, not really, because the, the, we're looking at um, a population of businesses that are selling to, you know, like 
every federal agency and or I mean particular an individual business is not selling to every agency but we're looking at the the range of firms and um, again all industries um, are proving to have some success in federal contracting you what, what the advice is though is to take a look very in very much detail with what our agency is purchasing and when our agency is purchasing. Um, each federal agency has um, uh, a spending prognosis or a you know kind of information that they post on their websites of you know upcoming bids uh, and also kind of looking at what time of year they're more likely to buy certain sorts of things. There's uh, also federal procurement opportunities. Fedbiz.gov will will give businesses information about um, you know, what's on the street right now. Um, it is true, however, that a lot of times when a federal agency is posting a procurement, you know, or a, a, a list of what they're going to be spending on, they may already have some businesses in mind, you know, that that are going that they know are going to be bidding on that which is why it's important to get to know people within the agencies and to start performing on a small contract so you can work your way up um, and to be on the radar screen of these agencies. But again, to your earlier question, no, they're really, federal procurement can be for any kind of business and any size of business as long as you do the research and kind of find where your niche is. Were there types of business, whether product or service or within an industry sector, where you saw a greater prevalence by gender or racial and ethnic breakdown? Um, Actually, no. Um, Women were a little bit more likely to be in service industries um, compared to men, although the majority of all the businesses that we interviewed um, were in services. Um, professional and technical services is the largest group among, you know, in the service sector um, that are federal contractors, but that's also one of the largest, and, and that's accounting, um, computer systems, research, engineering, that's what I mean by professional and technical services. Um, that's about 20% of the survey population overall, and there really isn't much of a difference uh, from that 20% um, by either uh, race, ethnicity, or gender, um, and about um, women are, as I said, are more likely to be in that in services overall than men, less likely to be in goods. But there wasn't much of a racial, ethnic difference in um, industry composition. Were there segments of the government or government agencies or geographic distribution of the contracts that uh, were noticeable? Um, actually, and that's that's another very good question because you would think perhaps that um, in terms of census regions that uh, the Washington D.C. area would be predominant, um, and it is more likely more spending goes on in the states right around Washington D.C., including Virginia and Maryland, um, and maybe also West Virginia. Um, but there are federal agencies and also. Um, military bases and other federal properties all around the country so it, it um, you know you can have federal procurement success everywhere um, it did look like in the northeast part of the country um, there were fewer opportunities um, but again that um, that could be just 
looking at the distribution of um, the federal um, complexes. Um, about 40% of the businesses that we interviewed are located in the south region, uh, census region, which includes um, D.C. and Virginia. Um, but no, there wasn't there wasn't a real big consolidation or concentration of spending in the Washington, D.C. area. There's, there's spending um, on federal contracting all over. In terms of the requirements, uh, we talked earlier about uh, size. You mentioned that uh, you probably need to have a certain size uh, in order to be able to invest the 86,000 or 93,000 in 1.7 years that mm -hmm. it takes on average to secure these contracts. Mm -hmm. Are there citizenship requirements involved uh, or residency requirements involved in getting these contracts? Um, I, you know, I don't know the definitive answer to that. I think that, that a lot of them do require citizenship. However, I do know that um, because I have some friends who, whose business in, in the Washington area is helping people get contracts, and that includes um, people from Canada, people from Mexico. So there are um, open opportunities that don't have citizenship requirements. Um, and in fact, in terms of location, quite a number of the contracts that, that might be done um, would actually be um, looked upon favorably if you had the ability to perform on that contract outside the United States, um, whether it's um, you know facilities at military bases um, or uh, embassies. You know there, there are things that may be done um, at multiple locations outside the United States. So I, I think having in international connections and the ability to to um, to get personnel on the ground in, in other places is an advantage. But I, I don't think that there's a blanket requirement that all um, contractors uh, bidding on um, on different um, projects have to be all U.S. citizens. I think that goes on a contract-by-contract -contract basis. I know in particular when I was um, in the federal government and, and letting out research requirements, um, there wasn't there wasn't a requirement, you know, for for citizenship, but it was it was Washington D.C. based or or in the based in the United States for for a domestic oriented project, but there wasn't a citizenship requirement for those. Are there educational or skill or training certification requirements that stand out in your mind in order to secure? X percentage of contracts or contracts in this segment, you must be a licensed attorney or a licensed accountant or whatever other skill. Yeah, yeah. Cer certainly, in some in some contracts or in some needs for government, they're they're going to want to look at whether the bidder, you know, has um, either licensing or other certifications. Um, in in general terms, and, and I'm not an expert on this, so I don't want to go into it in too much detail, but People uh, who are in certain ethnic groups could um, get into the AA program, which is put on by the Small Business Administration for socially and economically disadvantaged businesses. And um, some minority groups, I believe, including Latinos, are a quote-unquote presumed group 
um, meaning that if you have that characteristic, meaning you're Latino or you're African American, you are presumed to have some disadvantages, which can get you into this program. Um, and by so doing, you get some restricted competition um, contract opportunities. Um, if an agency has a requirement and they put it out under the 8A program, you're only going to be competing against other um, minority or 8A certified businesses. That's a business development program, though, and if you get into that program, you're only in it for a certain number of years. I don't, off the top of my head, know. I think it's maybe less than 10 years you're in that program. It's supposed to be so that you learn the ins and outs to federal contracting, and when you graduate from the 8A program, you're then you know, ready for more full and open competition. That's one way to get a stepping stone uh, into, into federal contracting. But you're sometimes then competing on much smaller contracts than you might otherwise be competing against. So, you know, there were a number of um, business owners in our survey who, even if they were um, business owners of color, were not uh, involved in the 8A program. When you look at the survey result, sort of the bird's eye view, the big picture of mm -hmm. your findings, are there things that, that you were surprised about having such a track record in looking at these issues? Are there things that struck you as surprising or noteworthy? Mm -hmm. um, actually, there were, um, and we haven't talked a whole lot about gender um, in, in this conversation, but one thing that was surprising to me, um, and one of the, the key differences between women and men who are act, active federal contractors, is that women were far more likely to be getting into federal contracting by utilizing the GSA schedule, and that's the General Services Administration. And if you put your good or service up on the GSA schedule, meaning it's kind of a list of, of businesses that are offering certain products and certain services at a certain price, that's kind of a pre-approved bidders list that agencies can then, when they have a need, can go and look at the businesses that are registered on the GSA schedule and then just talk to them and, and have um, much less competition. So I don't know if it's because women don't like the, the bartering that might be involved in you know, full and open competition or if they have you know, some unique product or service, but women are more likely than average to be on the GSA schedule. Um, so that was a surprising finding to me. And also it was initially surprising until I thought about it more that business owners of color were so much more likely you know, than white business owners to be going to these um, OSDABU, again, Office of Small and Disadvantaged Business Utilization meetings, going to matchmaking meetings, going to seminars. Um, that was initially surprising, but then I thought given some of the other research that I've done among women business owners, when you have when you're in a minority group and you're you're not involved in some of the networks that open doors for you, it's more important than to go to these meetings to gain contacts, to gain experience. And so it's showing that um, the business owners of color who perhaps don't have some of those um, buddies who are door openers for you, um, that attending these kind of networking and matchmaking events are much more important. 
What about age, Julie? Did you have a, an opportunity to inquire about the age of participants, and was there anything striking there? Um, we did ask age, and um, you know, most of the business owners are the you know, 35 to 54 middle age bracket, and there weren't a lot of differences in terms of uh, you know any uh, particular ethnic group being younger or older or that sort of thing. And, and again, since when we're slicing into looking at individual ethnic groups, we're looking at small sample sizes, we're not really able to say definitively that, say, the Hispanic population is younger on average than the Asian population or something like that. So um, we don't have the ability to, to slice the data that thinly. Uh, but overall, when we're looking at it, there weren't a lot of difference between um, uh, white business owners and business owners of color or women and men, you know, in terms of age. What would you say to our listeners who are thinking about exploring these federal contract opportunities or perhaps for those who have done this before or already in the system want to gain an advantage from your findings? What would you share? What insights would you share with them? Well, I think um, I would share what the successful contractors in our survey have shared, um, both by answering direct questions and, and by what they've told us in the other um, questions that we've asked. First of all, again, to, um, to keep at it. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. It took on average you know, between one and a half and two years for a small business owner who was starting to make bids and, and seeking opportunities to gain that first contract. So it does take time uh, to get that first contract success. We've also heard, not only in the survey, but I've heard it from business owners you know, over the years, is, is to start small and to work your way up. Um, because federal agencies want to know what your past contract performance is. And, and if you don't have any past contract performance, it's you're less likely to get that first um, win, and so it's sort of a chicken and egg thing. But if you start at a small level and work your way up, um, that's very important. And starting small can actually also be performing as a subcontractor. We've not really talked about in this conversation about subcontracting or teaming, but those are two strategies for um, working your way up to being a prime contractor, meaning you're the you know, at the top of the food chain, so to speak. Um, subcontracting means that you are performing a particular slice of a contract for a larger company, and teaming means that you are you are joining forces with co-equals, you know, other small businesses, to jointly bid on something. And you've already pre-agreed that if you win that contract, you know, you're divvying up the work in a certain way. And so both of those strategies are also important. Um, we also learned in this survey um, that procurement success takes time and money. You know, as I said earlier, overall it's about $86,000 a year in time and money that small business owners invest in seeking opportunities. So it's, you know, this kind of investment is not for everybody, but those who who are successful small business contractors um, have grown their businesses larger. They say that it's provided more leadership opportunities for themselves, more developmental opportunities for their employees, um, and business owners of color uh, in particular, both um, 
African-Americans, Asian, and Hispanics have said that one of the advantages of getting involved in federal contracting is that they are able to help their communities. In, in a local community, their employees, they have a better, a bigger sense of, of the good that this can do for their local community, you know, and also for their, you know, kind of ethnic community. So that's a very positive thing that, that business owners of color are feeling when they're involved in federal contracting. And, and so um, those, I guess, are the key lessons to learn. Start small, work your way up, um, keep at it, and also really take the time to do the research to know what agency you know, is buying what you have to sell. One of the thoughts that comes to mind, particularly because I've been looking at this data recently and I have it in the brain, but also because, of course, it's so pervasive, is the use of technology, whether it's cell phone access to the Internet or wireless access to the Internet, et cetera. And in the past, there has been speculation that older adults and women were less likely to take advantage of these technology tools. But the data, in fact, is not necessarily revealing that to be the case. We're seeing an increasing number of adults taking advantage of the tools and some of the social networking systems and sites, etc. Obviously, for purposes of this survey, you took advantage of an online tool, so mm -hmm. the respondents were obviously technologically savvy to some extent. Do mm -hmm. you have any insights that you would care to share on the role of technology in relation to today's topic? That's a very good question because, yeah, you that's kind of a, a requirement for getting involved in federal contracting because all federal agencies pay their contractors, disseminate and gather information electronically. <laughs> so if you're not... Um, technology savvy, at least to you know, a basic level, um, certainly with respect to e-commerce and the ability to transfer and receive funds electronically, then, then you can't get involved in federal contracting. So um, you know, that was one of the questions we had at the beginning when we were designing the survey and thinking of online survey versus not you know, a mixture of online and, and telephone. And we thought, well, no, all of these businesses already or online because you have to be online if you're registering on the CCR, the Central Contractor Registration System. I mean, all the information that you are submitting to federal agencies is pretty much all done electronically, and everything that you're getting back from them, you know, both information and general communications and also money, payment for contracts, is all done electronically. What's next now that you have all of this information that you've gleaned from the survey, what have you set your sights on? Do you have another project that you're working on in, in terms of this uh, information? Um, actually, yes, we do. Um, uh, we're taking another, um, a more in-depth look uh, at this survey and with respect to teaming and subcontracting, which I only just mentioned briefly um, in our conversation because that seems to be a very... Um, critical way that small businesses can start getting uh, taste of federal contracting. Um, and I think um, what will be next, um, at least for the American Express Open folks, is taking a look at, at what we found in these surveys and then um, adjusting and uh, changing some of their programming and support for small businesses based on the results of this. Um, 
looking at the fact that um, perhaps women are much more likely to, to be focusing on the GSA schedule? And is that something that that if other businesses are not as likely to do so, should they, you know, be educated about the GSA schedule? Um, the fact that business owners of color are much more likely to be going to matchmaking events, are there then um, certain needs that they may have that we want to, you know, target some of the events um, that they're doing uh, for business owners of color? So these are all conversations that I think they're, they're having right now. Um, but I think what's next is, is to take a look at some of the, the answers that we found in this survey, the ones that make us scratch our heads and say, hmm, I wonder why, you know, women are more or less likely to do this, or I wonder why Hispanics are doing this, and to um, perhaps do a follow-up survey to, to ask some questions to answer, you know, some of our, our why questions that came out of this, uh, of this survey. And certainly to help monitor um, you know, the growth and the interest in, in this topic among businesses around the country. I know that American Express Open has done some events on, you know, on the East Coast, on the West Coast, in the Midwest, and, um, and to take a look at what some of the, the questions are regionally um, and to try to take some of this expertise to people um, around the country. Thank you, Julie, for joining us from Traverse City, Michigan. You're very, very welcome. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Julie Weeks, who is President and Chief Executive Officer of Women Able. Today we discussed how Hispanic businesses are finding success in government contracting. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicMPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com.